It's become surprisingly apparent to me since assuming the position of NCA president last January that there's a confusion in the public and media with regard to what the NCA is, where its role as national office ends, and where the role of the NCA as a membership association begins. With every new issue that emerges in the media, there's the expectation that the national office and I, as president, should exert authority to set things right. In fact, the national office and the NCA president have no authority other than that explicitly granted by the more than 1,000 member colleges and universities. This is a critical point. The NCA is not an all-powerful presence, and the NCA president is not the omnipotent czar of college sports. Rather, the NCA is an association made up of universities and colleges that acts only after considerable deliberation, reflects the majority will of the membership, and authorizes the national office to execute its decisions. Welcome back to the Big Amateurs and Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a reminder that all of the episodes for this podcast can be found at my website, bigamateurism.com, where I have show notes and episode descriptions and some resources that I mention on an episode-by-episode basis, so you can check out some of the stuff we talk about for yourself. And then also I have my blog, which I've been writing in for about two years. And the name of that blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. In this episode, we're going to talk about the NCAA president. In the last episode, we talked about uh, university presidents and we're switching gears a little bit to a position in the big-time college sports business model that may be the most misunderstood power player in the whole business model. And the NCAA president has a couple of extraordinary powers that reside exclusively with that office, and you, you don't hear them talked about much. In fact, when you look at how the two most recent NCAA presidents, and that's Miles Brand and current president Mark Emmert, talk about the NCAA uh, national office and the president, they really downplay the authority that, that that office holds. And in the intro to this episode, you heard a quote, and that was Miles Brand speaking back in 2003 in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And one of his primary points of emphasis, and this was in his opening statement, and, and the hearings were really about the lack of competition in the college ball structure uh, back then. This was before the college football playoff. But one of the things that Brand really wanted to emphasize and, and to contextualize was that the NCAA national office and the NCAA president in particular really didn't have much independent authority outside of the, the membership. And that is a bit misleading. Brand was president from 2003 to 2009, and then he passed away from cancer. And then in 2010, Mark Emmert, the current NCAA president, took over. And Emmert uses that same narrative, and he uses it in his public comments and, and his testimony before Congress. And the idea there is that the national office and the NCAA president are really kind of passive actors in this whole enterprise. And they're just sort of... Uh, 
you know, managing all of these issues in accordance with decisions made at the university level and at the governing board level. But I think that general characterization is a little misleading when you look at what the NCAA president is actually authorized to do. And then another misleading effect of those characterizations is this suggestion that the NCAA president uh, has this direct relationship to the membership. And when you look at the powers that the Board of Governors has, one of its key responsibilities is to, quote, employ the NCAA president who shall be administratively responsible to the Board of Governors and who shall be authorized to employ such other persons as may be necessary to conduct efficiently the business of the association. A couple of things about uh, that description of the NCAA president's relationship to the organization. First, that's really the only description of the NCAA president's authorities that's contained in Article 4 of the NCAA Constitution titled Organization. And remember, we talked about this in the last episode. That section sets forth all of the governing bodies, how they are put together, who can serve on those governing bodies, and the specific duties of each one. And it's, it's very clear in terms of the divisions between the three major governing bodies, and those are the Board of Governors, the only association-wide governing body, and then you have the Division I Board of Directors, which is very powerful, and then you have the Division I Council. So those three governing bodies really are power players in the entire association-wide governance structure. You would think that there would be a similar specific identification of the NCAA president, what his role is, what his duties and responsibilities are, but that's not in the Article Four organization section of the NCAA Constitution. And the second thing I want to observe about how the NCAA president is characterized in that section of, under the Board of Governors uh, duties and responsibilities is that the NCAA president isn't elected by the membership. The NCAA president is employed by the Board of Governors and the NCAA president reports only to the NCAA Board of Governors. And that's important because as you'll see when we talk about the powers that the NCAA president does have, those powers are exercised in a very small universe of decision makers at the NCAA national office and through the NCAA Board of Governors. And that really undermines this suggestion that the NCAA president and the national office are simply uh, being responsive to the will of the membership and the will of all the people that the association serves. But to figure out what the NCAA president actually is authorized to do, you have to go to the very back into the bowels of the NCAA Division I manual. And, you know, that's a 450 page document. It's almost impossible to understand. It's written by lawyers for lawyers. But in the last section of that manual, there's a section called Administrative Bylaws. And it's not very long. And in those administrative bylaws, are two really important authorities and powers that the NCAA president has that are exclusive to the NCAA president. And the first relates to the sale of NCAA property. And the second 
relates to the authority of NCAA president to hire not just NCAA national office employees, but also non-administrative personnel that allow the NCAA president to go out and hire third-party service providers and experts to help conduct the business of the association. And we're going to talk about those two powers and how they are really important in this perfect storm era. And, you know, we're talking about the perfect storm, and that is how the NCAA and Power Five have gone about trying to eliminate external threats to their regulatory model, which would then eliminate external threats to their revenue streams. Let's talk more specifically about these two powers. And then with each one, I'll talk about how they're relevant to the perfect storm. So let's start with the sale of NCAA property. And I'll just go through the regulations and then talk really about the importance of the revenue generation capacity in, in the sale of those properties and how important it is to the NCAA's overall business model. But section 31.6 of these administrative bylaws is titled Right to NCAA Properties and Marketing Restrictions. And there's a section titled Championship Properties. And it's important to remember that the NCAA is only in the business of championships. It doesn't get involved in regular season programming. The conferences do that, and a couple of powerhouse individual schools have their own products. But the NCAA is only in the business of championships, and it conducts championships across the three divisions in all NCAA sports. But notably, as we've discussed in prior episodes that I want to reemphasize now, the NCAA has absolutely nothing to do with the big-time football championships or big-time bowl game tie-ins. Because of this 1984 Supreme Court decision and Board of Regents, the NCAA lost its football empire, and they get no football revenue. They are almost entirely dependent on revenue from the Division I men's basketball tournament. But under the championship properties regulations, the NCAA president has the authority to award the media rights to these championships, which means television, radio, and film rights. And then in the procedures of how those rights are awarded, it is the NCAA president who is responsible for the negotiation of those deals, for the terms of those deals and for how those deals fit into the overall business model of big time college sports. Another section titled Marketing, Licensing, Promotional and Public Affairs Initiatives, the NCAA president has the exclusive authority to sell all of the ancillary NCAA intellectual property to third parties or to corporate partners. And in that process, just as with the television rights, the NCAA president is responsible for negotiating those deals and deciding what terms are going to apply to those deals and you know, de dealing directly with all of the third parties who are interested in purchasing those rights. And the NCAA has a pretty big vault of intellectual property that it licenses and sells. And just as an example, I think the NCAA owns at least 70 trademarks. 
that relate to all of the championship products that it conducts and then sells the rights to. And of those 70 marks, I think 50 are sports specific, you know, tied directly to an individual sport and an individual tournament and an individual championship. And of those 50 sports specific marks, a substantial majority of them relate to the Division I men's basketball tournament, which is March Madness. And that is the goose that lays the golden eggs. That's where the NCAA acquires a lot of its intellectual property rights and then sells those rights for billions and billions of dollars. The CBS Turner contract, which again is the lifeblood of NCAA national office revenue, is its most lucrative contract. And it started in 1994 and in its current version will extend into 2032. And over that long contract period, the NCAA will have brought in 20 billion, that's billion with a B, dollars. And I want to talk a little bit about that contract because it's so important to the overall business model and is relevant in the perfect storm because it's the revenue from that one contract that is funding this war against external regulators to preserve the NCAA's authority to impose its compensation limits and preserve its revenue streams and preserve the status quo. So this March Madness revenue is important for a number of different reasons. Number one, it keeps the Power Five football interests happy. So the Power Five football interests have their own fiefdom and they have their own money and their own autonomy. And they operate at a business level entirely outside of the NCAA, but they are under the NCAA administrative umbrella and they receive enormous benefit from that relationship and from the March Madness money because that money goes to underwrite all of the administrative expenses that the Power Five benefit from, from these massive legal fees and the antitrust suits to the congressional lobbying campaign, to the big public relations campaign that is a part of that, to the enforcement and infractions program. And the Power Five football interests also benefit to a lesser degree by the goodwill that the NCAA generates association-wide by spreading that money around. And all that money is generated by elite Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. And big-time football gets a free ride on the dime of these elite basketball players. So, you know, that's one important factor with that money. And then another thing that the NCAA does, and it's been very, very good at this, is that it takes that money and as it spreads it around association-wide with grants to Division II, grants to Division III, hosting all of these championships, hosting conferences and paying for high-level conferencing and all of the committee structures that exist under the NCAA National Office umbrella and funding all of these lavish executive salaries at the NCAA National Office and Mark Emmert's $4 million salary and his private jet and all the perks that go with having this big pile of cash that's regenerated every year through this March Madness contract. The NCAA has really built a firewall against criticism for how it spends that money because it distributes it 
in a very smart way to enough downstream stakeholders to keep them pretty happy, you know, and dependent and compliant. And so you rarely see any pushback from these downstream beneficiaries, the overwhelming majority of whom are white and well off. And that's been the case, particularly since Miles Brand took over. He was the first former university president to be the president of the NCAA. And Mark Emmert is a former university president as well. And before Brand took over in 2003, there were a series of athletics director types, uh, Dick Schultz and Cedric Dempsey, who were head of the NCAA and external academic critics and reformers that I talked about a couple episodes ago, were very vocal and aggressive in wanting to know how much money was coming in, how it was being spent, and they wanted disclosures and they wanted subpoenas and they wanted accountings. And they were very attentive to what they perceived as corruption in the national office. And that was a smart focus because they were right in their concerns about how the national office conducted its business. But when Miles Brand took over, that criticism and that curiosity seemed to evaporate. And I think that's in large part because the external academic critics looked at Brand and he came in kind of on a white horse. He had just fired Bobby Knight and he was one of them. And there was this sense, I think, that the athletic director leadership, and then before them, there was Walter Byers, who was NCAA president from 1951 to 1987. And he really built this whole business model, but he was a journalist and a businessman and a cowboy. And, you know, he was flamboyant and had a big ego, but he was a business guy and he was doing deals and that's what he wanted to do. But when we get into the brand presidency, you have a completely different relationship to the academic stakeholders. And so I think some of that was driven by this sense of collegiality and these external reformists who, who should have been putting a lot of pressure on the NCAA president simply because of the power in that office and the amount of money that runs through it. They sort of backed off and they, they kind of were like, yeah, he's one of us and he gets it. You know, these are athletic director guys, they don't really understand what the academic mission is. They don't understand the extent to which we think the commercialization and professionalization of big time college sports is undermining the academic mission and the academic integrity. So we have our guy here. And I think that that has flowed over into Emmert's leadership. And Emmert's kind of a different kind of president. You know, he bounced around. Brand was at Indiana University for a long time. He was a well-respected academician, very smart man. He had some really good ideas. He was just kind of caught between the pressure to preserve academic integrity, but then also the pressure to maximize revenue from big-time football and big-time men's basketball. And we're going to talk about that when we talk about his conceptualization of the collegiate model. I've talked a little bit about that, but that's so important because it has really come to define in the 21st century the way that all of the uh, in-system stakeholders have justified some of the inequities in the system. But, you know, Emmert bounced around quite a bit and he was at Connecticut, he was at LSU, he was at Washington, and he was really a big time sports true believer. And in that sense, I think he was much different than Brand. As a university president, you know, when Brand transitioned into the national office, you know, he sort of sold out. A lot of people think that. I, I tend to agree with that in how he formulated the collegiate model and, and required the maximum exploitation of football and men's basketball. 
But Emmert, when he was at LSU, he made Nick Saban the highest paid football coach in the country. And Emmert was among the highest paid university presidents in the country, both at LSU and at Washington. So when he came into the NCAA presidency, you would think that there would have been some curiosity and some scrutiny from the academic community because, you know, he was kind of at the top of the food chain financially. And there was this sense that he liked to roll in the big money and he liked to be on the inside of this big time college sports enterprise and all the perks that it provided. And there wasn't this sense that he had the same concern for the academic integrity component of the business model that Miles Brand did. But it's important in the context of this perfect storm because under Mark Emmert, there's just been an explosion of spending. And we're gonna to get to that when we talk about the second power that the NCAA president has. But both Brand and Emmert have really operated in their sphere of authority without a lot of criticism from the inside and without a lot of scrutiny. And that's an important dynamic in this perfect storm. So before we move into the next power, I just wanted to mention that CBS Turner contract again, because the length of that contract is breathtaking. And the first version of that contract was signed in, I think, 1994. And then in 2010, there was a significant extension because that added Turner to the contract. And before that, it had just been CBS. And then in 2016, there was this extension into 2032. In my judgment, one of the reasons that that contract has such a long duration and this most recent re-up, kids who were born in 2016 will be in high school when, when that contract expires. But that has the effect of perpetuating the NCAA bureaucracy. And that is a very powerful motivator in how the NCAA president and the insiders who are involved in negotiating the March Madness deal and the sale of all the ancillary property rights, uh, think about the value of that deal. So the NCAA, through the NCAA president, has essentially achieved almost a permanent insurance policy against any threat to the administrative state. And you know, one of the key features of bureaucracies of any type, NCAA or any other, is that they want to perpetuate themselves. They want to protect themselves. And if they feel that they're under existential threat, they will fight like hell to protect their fiefdom, their money, their interests, and their power. And I believe that's a huge motivating factor in this perfect storm of events and this long-term contract with CBS and Turner locks in this kind of dark detente between the national office and the football interests and kind of holds captive big-time men's basketball and the money that it generates to serve the interests of the national office and the, the big-time football interests. And I may be betraying my basketball roots and my basketball bias, but... I think when you look honestly at the business model and that this triangle between the national office, the big time powerful football interests, and then the role that big time basketball plays in, in underwriting all of the administrative expenses through March Madness money, subordinate to these two other interests, it's subordinate to football in large part because football just generates more revenue and it achieved its uh, economic freedom in that board of regents suit. 
but it's also subordinate to the NCAA national office through this long-term contract because the basketball interests aren't in a position having been locked in to this long-term contract to fight back against it. And it's a really unhealthy dynamic that got exposed in the perfect storm. And particularly with COVID, when the revenue stream stopped and the Power Five football interests were making these interesting decisions about fall football. But in the middle of all this was this panic in the NCAA national office about the March Madness revenue stream. And then you had downstream stakeholders expressing those same concerns. And in the middle of all this, you have these elite basketball players who are generating all of this value who really have no voice in the business model. And I just think that's one of the injustices in this system. But I will say this, if the Power Five and Big East basketball players got together and decided to call in sick for the March Madness tournament, the NCAA national office would be in serious trouble. And the business model that this whole shooting match is based upon would be at risk. They, they have a lot of power. I just don't think they're going to be able to exercise it in a way that's going to be that effective. And we'll talk about that in other episodes. So now let's look at this second power. And that is the personnel power, the employment power. And we're going to go into the administrative regulations again. And we're going to look at section 31.8 titled personnel. And the first subheading under that is titled employment. And I'm just going to read this. In accordance with Constitution 4.1.2b, and that is the provision in Article 4 under the Board of Governors duties that I've read earlier that just kind of describes the relationship between the Board of Governors and the NCAA president. The NCAA president is authorized to employ such persons as may be necessary to conduct efficiently the business of the association. The number of administrative personnel that may be employed shall be determined at the beginning of each fiscal year and may not be increased without the approval of the Board of Governors. The NCAA president may employ as many non-administrative personnel as may be necessary. Now, if you're reading these administrative bylaws and you read through that, the importance of it doesn't really sink in. It's just, you know, more blah, blah, blah. But when you break down that provision, it contains extraordinary powers that are directly relevant to what's happening in the perfect storm, particularly that last sentence. I don't know what that is, 12, 13 words, but the NCAA president may employ as many non-administrative personnel as may be necessary. So that provision really talks about two categories of personnel. The, the one category that's subject to oversight by the Board of Governors relates to the actual employees at, in the national office. And, you know, it makes sense from a budgeting standpoint, the Board of Governors, who's kind of responsible for the overall business operations of the association and, and its budgeting and, and kind of the big picture finance issues, they want to know on a budget year to budget year basis, how much they're going to be spending on personnel. And so you kind of lock that in and you budget it. And if the national office wants to hire more people, they have to go through the board of governors. You know, it's a good, prudent business practice. But that last sentence gives the NCAA president complete authority to hire as many non-administrative personnel as he deems necessary. So what are non-administrative personnel? Well, they're the lawyers that are defending these antitrust suits. They are the lawyer lobbyists who are 
advancing the NCAA's interests in Congress. They are the public relations experts who are trying to spin the NCAA's regulatory power play in a way that disguises its true purpose and motivation. And then you also have strategic planners. So the NCAA has hired strategic planners to help the Board of Governors decide what the future of the association ought to be. And, you know, this ties back into who's in charge here. And the Board of Governors suspended its strategic planning initiative in that August 2020 board meeting. And it was on August 4th. And they issued this statement saying, you know, for 12 to 24 months, we're just going to press pause on this big picture planning. And we're just going to focus on these few other things, which all happen to relate to achieving the iron throne of college sports regulations. They were all in on the antitrust suits. They were all in on the congressional lobbying, and they were all in on trying to lock in the authority to completely control the entire industry of big time college sports. And I think that that single decision was an admission by the NCAA Board of Governors that they really had no control over the future of big time college sports. And the reason for that is that the true decision makers are these expert advisors who are managing these antitrust suits and the lobbyists who are manipulating the opinions of senators primarily, and then reporting back to the NCAA on how they should position themselves in order to achieve this political goal of eliminating external regulators. And so the NCAA Board of Governors really wasn't governing. They were sitting back and waiting to see what's going to happen in these antitrust suits, what's going to happen in Congress, what's going to happen in these state legislatures. And now with the change in the presidential administration from Republican to Democrat, you have the potential threat of another external regulator, and that is the executive branch. And I'm going to talk towards the end of the episode about some of these antitrust issues, but the executive branch is beginning to flex its muscle in this Austin case. And the United States of America has filed a motion to intervene, and they filed an amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, and they want to participate at oral argument, and they're intervening in support of the athletes. And that's huge. That's a huge change here. So you have all these moving parts that are completely external to the NCAA governance structure. So you have to ask yourself, who are the decision makers, the in-system decision makers, the university presidents, the NCAA governing boards, who are they listening to? And the answer to that, I believe, is that they're listening to the outside lawyers and the outside lobbyists and the outside spin doctors. And those people are directly under the control of Mark Emmert. And when you think about how this plays out in practice, actually the Board of Governors' decision to pull back in that August meeting does have some logic to it, but I just think it points out the extent to which they are powerless over this beast that has completely overtaken the college sports marketplace. And they showed for sure that they had no control over big time football because the timing of that August meeting and, and that decision to pull back on some of their governance responsibilities happened to be a week before the power conferences were making their decisions on fall football. And because of this board of regents decision and the financial independence that the power five have, and the fact that they have their own championship and their own bowl tie-ins that have nothing to do with the NCAA, 
the board of governors were powerless to do anything and to intervene. And it just really was an exclamation point on how flaccid and ineffective that board is when it came to addressing some very difficult issues. And COVID just really exposed the cracks in the foundation of that unholy trinity between the national office, the big time powerful football interests and and the basketball money. But in looking at this, I really tried to put myself in the position of a member of the NCAA Board of Governors. And I don't know, some of you may have served on boards of one type or another. And I've served on some boards and a couple have been governing boards. I've served on some advisory boards. And there are important distinctions between those two. An advisory board really has no authority. They are truly advisory. And a lot of their influence is really superficial. And you come in and you cheerlead for the institution or the or the entity or whatever the thing is you're advising. But you really don't have much real control over how the decisions are made. Governing board is, as the title suggests, is completely different and they have real responsibilities. And the NCAA Board of Governors has real responsibilities and they're representing higher education. You know, they're representing one of our most important cultural institutions. And they're in a big business, a $15 billion a year business. And their decisions are consequential because even though they don't have a legal fiduciary duty to the athletes, and we'll talk about that and why that's the case, I believe they have really created a moral fiduciary duty based on their propaganda and all of the things they claim they stand for and all of the ways that they claim to be concerned about the educational interests and the well-being of the athletes. So they are the standard bearers of that set of principles and they've defined them and they own them. So imagine yourself sitting at a meeting of the board of governors and you are going through the ordinary business. It's not that controversial, but you know that the most important decisions, the most important actors, the most important influences in what college sports is going to look like going forward are going to come from the lawyers, the lobbyists, and the public relations people. So you go into executive session and you're getting these briefings from these very smart third-party experts who are involved in some extraordinarily complex issues, both on the legal side and the political side. And you're trying to make heads and tails of it And you know that your decisions could have a huge impact on the future of college sports. So instinctively, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to defer to those experts. And that's the way it works on governing boards. And the primary point of contact that those third-party experts have probably isn't with the board of governors. It's most likely with the person who hired them, which is Mark Emmert. And the chief legal guy, a guy named Don Remy at the NCAA National Office, and the array of attorneys that are on the NCAA executive staff, the number of attorneys in the NCAA executive leadership has mushroomed over the years. And there's a reason for that. So you have all of this information kind of flowing through these people at the national office who have these incentives and motives that are completely inconsistent with the values of the association and they're pursuing them. 
And then that is the filter through which the governing board is getting all their information. And the only intelligent response to that dynamic, if you're sitting in the seat of a, a member of the board of governors, is to defer to the experts. And I believe that's exactly what has happened. And I think another perfect example of that, you know, one was the board of governors issuing that August 4th statement and really taking a back seat. But the other is what happened with this name, image, and likeness voluntary rules change initiative that the NCAA has been championing since May of 2019. And things move so fast in the news cycle. And in the latter phases of this perfect storm, some of the biggest news stories in modern history have played out and, and kind of subsumed the events that have occurred during the perfect storm that when you look back and you analyze them and reverse engineer them, you see how disingenuous the NCAA and Power Five have been on this whole nil compensation issue. And that's going to be an important part of how we come to understand the perfect storm when I get to that May 2019 period. But you have to remember that the NCAA was just coming off of this O'Bannon suit. And even though O'Bannon died on the uh, Supreme Court steps in 2016, and remember, O'Bannon was that name, image, and likeness case. And it's really important because the athletes didn't get that much out of O'Bannon as a practical matter. And the way that Ninth Circuit framed its legal reasoning on the role of amateurism in the NCAA's compensation limits, it was really deferential to the NCAA. And so on the backside of that, the NCAA, they escaped the worst possible outcome, which would have been a free market for the athlete services. And what was left instead was this interesting distinction that the Ninth Circuit and O'Bannon drew between education-related benefits and non-education-related benefits, and basically took non-educated-related benefits off the table but the NCAA comes into this voluntary rulemaking initiative to get the athletes some nil compensation with a backdrop of just having spent $100 million in O'Bannon to draw a line in the sand on nil compensation and to fight to the death to prevent athletes from achieving any nil compensation. And even though the substantive part of the case ended in the fall of 2016 when the Supreme Court declined review, there was still an attorney's fees issue that was being litigated, and that played out into late 2018. So the NCAA was still fighting tooth and nail because they believed that they were right in O'Bannon and they didn't want to have to pay legal fees. And then it's just six months later that all of a sudden they have this working group that they start up to explore nil compensation, or at least it comes to be that. Initially, it was to find ways to beat back the federal and state legislative threats to the compensation limits. Have to understand that transition. And the NCAA and Power Five saw this nil compensation discussion as a great way to get in front of the Senate to try to get these extraordinary federal immunities and protections under the guise of nil compensation. You really start to see the NCAA putting itself in an interesting position because they're making all these promises and they're issuing all these reports. And in October of 2019, there were two reports, one from the working group, and then the board of governors issued this statement that they supported uh, nil compensation, or at least that's how it was reported in the media. And everybody came to understand at that point that yeah, the NCAA is really all about doing the right thing and it's going to voluntarily alter its rules. And you have this process that's been set up uh, to give the divisions. And this was division based. The NCAA itself is, again, playing that card that Brandon and Emmert play that 
look, we aren't decision makers here. We're just facilitators. And these are divisional decisions. And each division will do its own investigation and within the parameters that we set. Uh, and then they will come up with the draft legislation. And then they will decide whether and how to change their rules on name, image, and likeness. So that was kind of the expectation that they set. And they were given until January of 2021 to get it done. And it's my belief that as the NCAA was kind of pushing that for public relations purposes and putting that deadline out there, all of this work they were doing behind the scenes to lay the foundation in Congress to achieve these extraordinary federal protections and immunities that, that if granted, would have allowed them to do nothing on nil. I think they believed all that was going to be in place before this January 2021 deadline. And if the NCAA had achieved that and had essentially the federalization of their compensation limits put into a bill in Congress, then they really didn't have to do anything on nil. But things didn't play out as they had hoped. And then with the Georgia special elections, it just turned things upside down. Because as I mentioned in prior episodes, this whole nil compensation debate took on a partisan divide, particularly in the Senate. And if you're a Republican, you're for the NCAA's view of the world. And if you're a Democrat, you're for the athlete's view of the world. And there wasn't really much middle ground there. But the Republicans controlled the Senate. And there was every expectation that the 2020 elections were going to allow the Republicans to control the Senate. And if that had been the case, even though they lost the White House and they, and they lost the support of Trump and Pence, uh, both of whom had been vocal in kind of support of Power Five NCAA interests, you still had this opportunity in the Senate to get what you needed in Congress. And then that all changed. It changed overnight with the Georgia special elections and then the flip of the Senate from Republican to Democrat. And then all this hurry up that the Power Five and the NCAA were insisting on in Congress, all of a sudden they were slamming on the brakes. And remember that the NCAA was going to roll out its divisional nil proposals, some proposed legislation that was going to get athletes nil compensation. And that was going to happen at their January meeting in 2021, which started on January 11th. The week before, they lost their advantage in the Senate. And then between January 5th and January 11th, the NCAA, through Mark Emmert, pulled the plug on voluntary nil rules changes. And they used a really disingenuous excuse for that. And we'll talk about that in detail. But all of a sudden, after promises since May of 2019 for this nil voluntary rules changes, all of a sudden it just disappeared. And the lack of curiosity in the media was just shocking to me. But that speaks to the power of the external influences that have been driving the train on the future of college sports. And they've dictated the decisions of the institutional stakeholders and the NCAA governance bodies, particularly the Board of Governors. Because once they lost control of the Senate, I believe what happened is that the lawyers who were handling the lobbying effort came to them and said, you know, your campaign in the Senate now is on life support. And if you continue to really push this, you may wind up with a bill that's not very good. And so literally overnight, without any internal deliberation, without any of this thoughtful discussion that the NCAA and the governing boards claim supports their decision making, 
you had the NCAA pulling the plug on one of the biggest promises it's made in the 21st century to try to move athletes' rights into the 21st century. And they did that under the public relations guise of modernizing NCAA rules. And that was the word that the NCAA Board of Governors used when it was pumping the the narrative in the media that they were serious about making voluntary nil rules changes. So I think what you had was these external experts advising the NCAA that they had to completely retool their strategy and they had to do it on the fly and they had to do it quickly to figure out what they're going to do since they lost their advantage in the Senate. And again, that just speaks to the fact that these external decision makers are really running the NCAA right now. And that's going to be the case until the Supreme Court makes its decision in Austin, because it's my belief that now that the NCAA has lost its advantage in the Senate and the Power Five has lost its advantage in the Senate, that depending on what happens in this Austin suit, the next move to acquire their regulatory authority and the iron throne of college sports regulation isn't going to run through Congress. It's going to run through the state of Florida with a federal lawsuit that the NCAA initiates and the Board of Governors has the exclusive authority under those organizational duties and responsibilities to initiate and settle litigation. That's one of their key responsibilities. So the Board of Governors is going to have to get back in this game and decide whether they are going to be on board with a federal lawsuit against the state of Florida challenging Florida's name, image, and likeness law, which is set to go into effect on July 1st. And I have some thoughts on why they're going to go to Florida rather than California, which has had a law on the book since 2019. But that's the next pathway. And that suit is going to challenge that law under the what's called the Dormant Commerce Clause. And we'll talk about that as well. But basically, they're going to say that that law imposes undue burdens on interstate commerce and the NCAA under a uniformity theory can't be expected to comply with 50 different standards, which is similar to the argument they were making in Congress under this preemption theory. So instead of going to Congress for that, they're going to go to a federal court, the very federal courts they're trying to eliminate for the athletes in this Austin suit, they want to avail themselves of to try to get the state legislatures completely out of the game and to eliminate them as external regulators. But that's going to be a really interesting pathway for the NCAA because the Board of Governors is going to have to step up and make a decision that they're going to be bound by. So as I like to say to my friends here in North Carolina, the NCAA and Power Five are in the four corners. And if you're not from North Carolina, you may not know what that means. But four corners was the lay offense that was invented and used by two great basketball coaches from North Carolina. One is John McClendon, who was basketball coach at uh, North Carolina Central University, which is an HBCU. And then Dean Smith picked up on that and made that four corners famous, but it's a delay tactic. And I use it metaphorically when somebody's in a delay pattern, I was like, ah, they're in the four corners. So the NCAA and the Power Five are in the four corners right now until they see what they get from the U.S. Supreme Court in this Austin case. And, you know, all these people that were going out in front of the nearest camera and the nearest microphone a year ago saying that we had to do something right away, had to do something right now on this nil compensation. The Senate had to act and they, when they needed a bill and rush, 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 all of a sudden they just fell silent. And that's true for some of these university leaders 
And that kind of segues me into what I'm going to be doing in the next few episodes. So there was an interesting story that just broke last Friday, I guess. And today is March 11th. So last Friday, there was a story in the Washington Post about how the Big Ten presidents during the decision about fall football were reluctant to have their discussions in a forum where they could be discoverable through public records requests. So they kind of manufactured this way to take the discussion into the Big Ten portal. And the Big Ten is a nonprofit and it is ostensibly private, even though 13 of the 14 schools in the Big Ten are public schools. But at least on its face, that removed the discussion from a state forum into a private forum. And, you know, there's some interesting issues there on public records law that we'll get into when I do this episode. But Rebecca Blank was an important player in that. And she's the chancellor of Wisconsin-Madison, and that's the highest office. She's the equivalent of the president. And she was a supporter of trying to get these discussions in a way that wasn't going to be publicly discoverable. And that's a terrible look given the circumstances of that decision. But one of the interesting things that didn't get reported when that story broke was that Rebecca Blank is a member of the NCAA Division I Board of Directors, and she was one of the NCAA's star witnesses in congressional testimony. And she testified on September 15th in the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee chaired at the time by Lamar Alexander, a Republican of Tennessee, who delivered an opening statement in those hearings that was very hostile to nil compensation. And it was all about academic integrity and the student athletes. And he said, if you want to get paid as a college football or basketball player, then and you want to be someone's employee, then go play in the pros. It was really not a great moment for Senator Alexander as he was preparing to retire. But Rebecca Blank's testimony in that hearing is really interesting. And I want to talk about that. And I want to talk about the secrecy issue because that's really interesting as well. And it brings together some of the really unfortunate ways that the regulation of college sports has taken over the years. And it's gotten less and less transparent and less and less accessible. And it's very difficult to accept what some of these decision makers and stakeholders say in their public comments because these stories break and then you realize that, you know, they weren't playing it straight. So we're going to talk about that. And then I am going to call an audible, you know, quarterbacks can do that. And when they see something they want to change, they change the play. So I'm changing the play here a little bit. I was going to continue on with the stakeholder discussions, but what's happening in this Austin case in the Supreme Court is getting more and more interesting to me. And some of these amicus briefs that have been filed are fascinating. The United States' intervention is significant, and there's no question about that. It could be game-changing. But these other private interests that have filed briefs on behalf of the athletes have made some really interesting points. But there's some aspects of that whole case from a legal standpoint and then from a policy standpoint that are really important to talk about. And I think it's best to talk about them while that issue has momentum and there's going to be more and more press coverage leading up to the oral argument on 
March 31st. And then there's going to be a lot of armchair quarterbacking after the oral argument to try to read the tea leaves on what the justices are thinking. And, you know, I have my own thoughts on that. And it's always dangerous because you never really know. And the Supreme Court can throw you a curveball in a heartbeat. I had a case in the U.S. Supreme Court as a litigator. But it's fun. It's fun to speculate and to try to pontificate. So I'm going to do a little bit of that. But I also think it's really important to see what's happening in real time right now, because this is a crucial event in the history of college sports. And as I said, in I think it was in episode one, this Austin case, uh, depending on what the Supreme Court does, could wind up being one of the most consequential single events in the history of college sports. And would rank up with the Board of Regents decision in 1984 as a game changer. So we're going to talk about that, and I'm going to try to get those episodes out, hopefully, a couple of days or more before the hearing, before the oral argument on March 31st, and then we'll see what happens. So for right now, let's just close this thing out. Thank you so much for joining. I know that some of this stuff was deep in the weeds, but It'll make more and more sense as we move forward. And I'm going to reinforce certain themes that are so important, like the relationship between the Power Five and the NCAA and the basketball money, because it's really important to understand that it's not part of the current narrative of big time college sports. And one of the reasons I wanted to do this podcast was to really highlight some of these aspects of the business model that get virtually no coverage, and then to also talk about what I think the NCAA is really doing and talking about what they've done and what the Power Five have done in this Austin case really is illuminating, I think, in terms of their motives and and what they're really trying to achieve here. So we'll have some fun with that, I hope. After that, hopefully I'll get back to some of the stakeholders and then we'll jump right into the events of the perfect storm, which will bring us into real time. I, I hope that's the case. So anyway, thanks again, and I hope you will join me for the next episode of The Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.